You know, there's conversations about personal responsibility and accountability, but like the conversation as to why people are trapping, why people are using drugs has more to do with the structural inequities of how people are not part of the economic system that is currently available for people. And no one's talking about those pathways. Everyone's just saying the things you're doing to survive, what you do well in, um, are wrong, and, but you're not giving people anything else. And part of the reason why they're there is because you didn't give them anything in the first place. So... It's just really stupid. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. This episode is long overdue. We're very happy to welcome to the show Cassandra Frederick, Executive Director of the Drug Policy Alliance. Cassandra, we know you're super busy, so thank you very much for stepping away from all the important work you're doing and coming on our show to talk some nerdy drug policy with us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, this is this is a big one. We, we, we landed Cassandra. Also on the pod today, we have Narcotica co-hosts, Troy Farah and Chris Maraff. What's up, guys? Hello. What's up, Zach? Oh, you know, just uh, just living, I guess, in my girlfriend's closet. It's where I quarantine. So just to, yeah, dive right into it, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So the Drug Policy Alliance is coming off some pretty big policy victories. New York just legalized cannabis and New Jersey was sort of legalized right before that. And it sounds like New Mexico is in line to be next. So there's lots of action. And, you know, there seems to be some actually important criminal justice components also happening in these laws, which which we'll definitely get to. But first, you know, for some of our listeners, Cassandra, like what's DPA's role in this big wave of change sweeping the nation, you know, from Oregon decriminalizing all drugs to, you know, all these states legalizing cannabis, DPA is there pushing and organizing and doing its thing, right? Yeah, I would say that we've been pretty busy over the last couple of years. Uh, DPA has really been focusing on working with folks on the ground and just articulating and putting into motion structures for like these pretty big wins in Oregon, RC4. There are two organizations, Drug Policy Alliance, which is our C3, um, and our sister organization, Drug Policy Action, which is our C4. you know, RC4, Drug Policy Action, led the ballot initiative process uh, in Oregon, working with folks on the ground. And our Drug Policy Alliance organization has been doing work in states like New Mexico and New York and New Jersey for a while and really building the movement and infrastructure to get really big wins. And so uh, I would say that we've been, we're a little busy. We tend to be um, in the middle of the action. It's super exciting, super exhausting. Um, but also super rewarding when we win. So there's all these new legal cannabis laws. I think that, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, between 2014 and 2020, there were like 11 states to legalize cannabis. And in the last seven months, it's been 
uh, a bunch of states, I think like six or seven. Um, but uh, let's talk about some of these laws. How do they uh, deal with repairing the atrocious history of racist policing and drug enforcement, especially in New York, which is home to uh, the brutal Rockefeller drug laws and all that? I think one of the biggest advances in marijuana reform policy in the last couple of years has been it being unapologetically criminal justice reform. I think one of the staples of DPA has been our commitment to do multiple parts of drug policy reform work. So, you know, we've been a part of marijuana reform work. We've done criminal justice work around sentencing and disparities do work around harm reduction. And I think there was an explicit decision to make our marijuana reform work explicitly criminal justice uh, focused and anchored. And what you see in like the bills in New York and New Mexico is like a very clear um, instrument to remove criminal penalties, but also remove the criminalizing factors that happen in other parts um, of the system. So really focusing on in New York, especially like removing all the other ways that marijuana is used to destabilize people. So whether it's child welfare or housing or unemployment or parole or probation, uh, recognizing that, you know, this is much more than the plant. And I think that's what you're seeing and what we're pushing is like, listen, like you're, your opinion of drugs and whether people should use it or not, um, I don't care, right? Like, I think people should be able to use drugs if they want to. What I really care about is how you use drugs to destabilize people. And so any policy we put forward is not just about accessing the drug, it's about removing the way that the state uses that drug to mess people up. I don't give a fuck if you use drugs or not. Like, what I give a fuck about is like, how the state um, tries to fuck people over. And like, it's, you know, and I think oftentimes people, what's been interesting about this movement is like, there had to be a merging of like the marijuana reform folks and the criminal justice folks. Uh, and I think that, you know, that was full of stretching on both parts. Um, and I think what you see in New York is, the melding of those two people with the very clear anchoring that this is not just about access to the plant, that this is about access to freedom and liberation. And you will not get one without the other because we won't allow it to go forward. Let's talk about some of the, the like um, dichotomies and, and, and across the spectrum of these types of laws. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's one thing to legalize weed. It's another thing to include reparations for people that have been harmed in the past or to make it um, something that's not tested for, for probationers or, you know, something you won't get kicked off a methadone clinic for doing. Um, what are the different extremes of this? And is every state kind of handled this differently? Yeah, I think, I think different states didn't handle those things. Right. And I think people had to come back and try to fix it. Um, I think about, Places like Washington State, you know, they were one of the earlier ones. You know, a report just came out a few weeks ago that showed that, you know, they legalized cannabis and drug testing for pregnant people skyrocketed, right? And 
when you're having drug testing for pregnant people, you know, people are getting their kids taken away. The state isn't engaging folks. And of course, the racial disparities were clear. It was like black pregnant people were having the state interfere with their lives because they tested positive for cannabis, right? And it's just like, the thing for us is like, we're very clear that this thing is whack-a-mole. And we're just like, I, I would rather us not play with that. Like, why can't we get at as much as possible in the beginning. And I think what you're seeing is folks moving into that place, right? Like, oh, we have to do it at the same time um, and we have to increase our ask. So it would be irresponsible. It would be racist. It would be um, delusional if our cannabis ask from 2012 were the same ask we had in 2021 because we've learned so much. Um, and so I think that what, what you see in New York is different from what you saw 10 years ago, but if what happened 10 years ago didn't happen, New York wouldn't be possible. So I think the standard just changes as we keep going on and on. I think so. So um, I, I sort of had a, 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 yeah, a, a point or kind of a follow-up to what you were just saying, Cassandra, about how like the kind of push to change these laws 10 years ago you know, obviously things have changed and evolved and the politics today are, are super different from, from back then. And, and you were talking about kind of uh, marrying the marijuana cannabis legalization movement with criminal justice reform. And, and I think for, for listeners who, who might not know, you know, the full background of you and, and DPA, but you came on board to lead DPA, like, I think in March 2020, right? And then, you know, just two months later, it was like George Floyd was killed by police. And that sparked, like, the biggest protest movement seen in my lifetime, maybe maybe our history. Like, can you sort of talk about when you came into this position, like... A, how did it feel to watch what was going on in the world? And then B, like, how did that maybe change your approach or agenda at DPA? Yeah, so thanks for this question. I mean, I think one of the things that's important is I was announced in March as the next person, but I didn't take the role until September. Um, and part of it is when George Floyd happened, I think it was a, an awakening moment for a lot of people. It wasn't for me. Um, I think for me, my awakening moment happened uh, like eight, 10 years ago with Ramarley Graham in New York in the Bronx, where um, this young man was killed in the bathroom in front of his grandma and his little brother. And that was at the time where I was... Uh, probably a policy coordinator or an associate. I was in an entry-level position in DPA's New York office. And I remember going to the protest in the Bronx. And I remember being really upset because a lot of the civil rights folks weren't marching with us. And part of the reason they weren't marching with us is because the original reporting on the issue was that... Uh, Ramarley was in a hand-to-hand, -hand, right, with cannabis. And, you know, as the details came out years later, you know, that is a disputed point. 
but that is how I came to it. And I was just, we were just really getting into our work around marijuana arrest and stop and frisk and policing. And I remember being worried about making the connection. And part of it was because I had still hadn't worked through my biases around drugs, right? So I felt super protective of the family and feeling like, man, like, I don't want to, like, use this person's death as a way, as a tool to push my advocacy work, right? Like, I don't want to exploit the family. And, and they were very rightfully very upset about the drug connection at, because it was being used as a way to justify law enforcement killing their son. And I, I had really complicated feelings because I don't think I fully, like I understood that law enforcement was using it as justification, but I was very, I was, it was, I was super impressionable about how the family was reacting negatively to that association and the stigma. Remember, like, cannabis was still, like, is still highly stigmatized now, but it was way more stigmatized, you know, 10 years ago. And I remember being the person that had to make the choice about whether we were going to connect it or not. And I said no. And I said, I don't, I don't want us to talk about the way that the cops killed this guy and how they're using marijuana because the family doesn't really want that. And, and, you know, I want to respect the family's wishes, but I also was kind of like, it, it was, it was, it was weird. It was hard. It was like, there was a lot there. I was infuriated um, that the civil rights community um, was hesitant in the beginning to embrace um, this family and uplift the, the work because of the drugs. And then I think a few weeks later, Trayvon Martin was killed. And, you know, cannabis came up again. And I think it was at that moment where I was like, if it was, it was weird. Cause it was like, you know, and this is, this is really arrogant. Um, but it, it felt like if I would have said something, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Like if we had made the point that, you know, cannabis and policing and racism are being used to smear this person and give them the, the justification to kill this young man. If we, if we were louder, if we were bigger, if we protested, like maybe this wouldn't have happened. And, you know, that's, that's not realistic, but I felt a deep level of guilt uh, because it felt like it happened again. And I think with George Floyd, uh, I am, it was not an, it was not an awakening. It was uh, a reinforcing. And I think what was powerful about the moment was that I was finally in a position of power organizationally to make sure that DPA was the loudest it could be about that connection. So it is 10 years of like being one of the most junior people on staff and not necessarily having the power, the decision-making to make DPA's posture aggressive and assertive and unapologetic about it. And then being in this role where I'm literally now the ED and I get to direct how this large organization is going to engage with us. And I feel like you see that in the way that we've moved, which is like, no, this is about policing drugs and racism. This is bullshit. Fentanyl didn't kill George Floyd. You're needed and you're lying. 
This is the same lawyer that did this with Philando Castile. The drug wars will kill Breonna Taylor. The drug wars will kill Carlos um, Lopez. The drug wars will kill Daniel Prude. And like just naming it every single time, like, no, this is what it is. And we're actively going to work to dismantle it. Um, and so I think that is kind of the difference. But I feel like for me, it, it was watch, it's, it, it was the pain of watching the cycle continue um, was what I felt. Um, and I think more, even more upset was recognizing that Breonna Taylor had been killed the month before. And we still didn't know, I, I didn't know about it. It was like through George Floyd that we learn about Breonna Taylor and just recognizing the particular way that police kill black women, um, trans and cis, um, on the drug war and how people don't talk about that at, as well. Um, and so I think that's what the summer represented, which is like, we're going to do this differently. Damn. Yeah, that's powerful, powerful shit. Yeah, I don't think enough of the connection has been made between the extent to which the drug war has fueled mass incarceration um, down to um, just people getting engaged in economic crimes earlier, which lead to an increased risk of arrest after the age of 18. Yeah. even for something that's not drug related. Um, so it sort, of, it sort of creates the environment for a life of criminality to, yeah. in, to continue after that. And, and I think that that is um, a really important point to make that we can't just look at the numbers of people in jail for drugs because a lot of the people that are in jail for uh, you know, things other than drugs probably got their start um, on the street trapping, you know, I mean, and an important distinction to, to, to point out, I think. Yeah, and I think people miss the fact that like, you know, we say like a lot of the reasons why people use drugs are the same reason why people sell drugs. And I feel like you've seen historically groups that do a drug policy reform um, have struggled and stumbled in making the analysis around people selling drugs, right? And so I think about oftentimes when people can say that this person was selling drugs, that justifies why the state can kill them, right? So with Romali, it was like, oh, he was doing a hand-to-hand. Or um, Eric Garner, oh, he was selling untaxed cigarettes. Like, this, these are all things where it's like, well, why were they doing that in the first place? What is the economic and structural violence that created these conditions? And how is that also part of the drug war, right? Like, like these are rational choices that people are making. Yeah, the, it's violent. You know what's violent? Like, prohibition is violent as fuck, right? Um, and, like, let's actually deal with the root of that, which is prohibition, and, like, have the conversation as to how it's setting these structural um factors that people are engaging with. And I think so often, like, people are so amped to blame the individual that they never, they don't want to ask the question about how we set that person up. And, you know, there's conversations about personal responsibility and accountability, but, like, the conversation as to why people are trapping, why people are using drugs has more to do with the structural inequities of how people are not part of the economic system that is currently available for people and no one's talking about those pathways everyone's just saying the things you're doing to survive what you do well in um are wrong and but you're not giving people anything else and part of the reason why they're there is because you didn't give them anything in the first place so it's just really stupid yeah in in 2019 dpa put out a a really interesting report called rethinking the drug dealer and like drug dealer is in scare quotes like is like under your leadership or, you know, having the organization move on, on these issues in a different direction, like is, is that kind of report um, 
kind of like a sign of that like like think like you know i i haven't seen much of anyone try to even like not apologize for drug dealing but to like contextualize the economic circumstances that lead to drug dealing and how that is a critical aspect of the drug policy reform but like you're saying like not a lot of organizations are trying to do this kind of analysis i think the thing that i'm interested in is dpa doing the hard work uh because now there's a problem when the state starts using your language (laughs) you know when like the president of the united states is using your language when police officers are using your talking points when people are like oh yeah well we agree with that but we just don't like this particular thing it means that we need to ask for more so i i find like with we can't end drug prohibition and we can't end the drug war without figuring out how we navigate people who sell drugs and and talking about people who sell drugs people that are part of manufacturing and trafficking all these things are a part of the drug war and we can't ignore them, right? Like we can't end the drug war for people who use drugs and not deal with everybody else. And I think we're going to have to fumble through. I don't think we're going to get it always. The, I don't think we're always going to get it right. Um, but I think we need to start having that conversation. And inherent in that conversation is having the, is really navigating the issue of violence. Um, and those are things that, you know, I'm not saying DPA next year is going to have a policy agenda, but what I am saying is that in the next couple of years, DPA is going to be having those conversations with people and partners and figuring out what's the way forward. So the question that I have, kind of a follow-up to that, do these cannabis laws do enough? Do they go far enough in terms of drug equity? I remember being told uh, that Illinois has one of the most progressive cannabis laws in the country, unlike, say, Colorado and Washington State, which seem to just legalize weed without thinking very deeply about how to repair the harms of the drug war. Illinois baked in a bunch of these provisions in their law that would seem to go much further. But it appears that the rollout in Illinois has actually been uh, pretty abysmal. Uh, I'm drawing some of this from a Marijuana Business Daily article from last July that titled, uh, Illinois Social Equity Program Flawed, Advocates Say, But It's Best in Cannabis Industry So Far. It quotes Akel Parnell, a Chicago-based attorney and board member of Chicago Normal, who said, Because of the limitations of how we are able to structure the program, we can't be 100% certain that the social equity program will bring the racial diversity that we want. But Parnell also noted, criticisms aside, it's hard to come up with a better approach. Uh, So thinking about some of the more recent laws that have been passed, like such as New York, maybe New Mexico soon, do any of these laws really get it? And what would you like to see more of, maybe less of? One, I think that... I I find that the standard that we're trying to navigate for cannabis is super important. And I also remind people that we are regulating under a system of capitalism. And it's really hard to create equity in a structure that's inequitable, right? And so people are doing the best that they can. Of course, New York and New Mexico is probably going to go further than Illinois because we paid attention to the things that didn't work for them. Uh, And, you know, I think our bills are only going to be as good as they are implemented. And so I think on paper, they're strong. um, And I think implementation is going to be key. Uh, And I think that that's in general what everything is, right? But cannabis legalization and the industry is not going to solve racism. And I think the 
the problem or the thing, the challenge is that when we started doing this work around cannabis and around, uh, you know, legalization, it was people promised that <laughs> and that was always wrong. Like it's going to lessen these things, but it's not going to eliminate them because, and it's, and because this inherently has to be an issue of changing the way that we deal with public safety. And that's why folks in cannabis need to be a part of broader criminal justice movements around policing, around economic justice, because those things aren't just gonna magically appear in cannabis policy. They're not just gonna magically work for us because we're still operating in those larger structures. Right. I think the thing that I would say about cannabis that I'm actually really interested in is what are different regulatory models than what we have now. Like we, you know, before everyone was like, well, regulate it like alcohol. Alcohol is, it is known that alcohol is not a, a racially diverse industry, but that's what we modeled our regulation on. Um, and so I think that the, the thing for our movement is like, what are different regulation models that are not based on inequitable systems. And that's what I'm actually most interested in as cannabis continues to be regulated, but also as we have the broader conversation around the regulation of all drugs. Yeah, in in a recent press release, I think it was it was exactly about how you at least DPA doesn't in in its legalization efforts want to replicate the alcohol industry and big tobacco. And and that's really where like a lot of the debate seems to be shifting now where we people used to be debating, oh, should this be legalized? And now it's the debate is exactly where you just brought it to, which is how should we do it? How should these markets be created? And so in terms of like tobacco and alcohol as kind of learning lessons of what not to do, which is like uh I mean, tobacco still like even after the the big lawsuits and all the billions of dollars in advertising, like the people who still smoke cigarettes, uh, at least a significant number of the ones still buying it, it's low income people, poor people and and minorities, racial minorities that that's still the, the biggest kind of buyer of cigarettes. So like I know cigarettes are not uh, weed like like cannabis is just like a different thing. But um, yeah, what kind of models and kind of regulatory structures for these markets are you imagining that that would kind of dispense with the, the kind of nasty side of the alcohol and tobacco industry? I think one of the things that's super important for this is, you know, part of the reason why we came out with the statement around tobacco and alcohol was just because it was just so ridiculous, right? It was like, you guys have, you have benefited so much from prohibition. You've done nothing to talk about how prohibition is not healthy and how it's a bad policy. Like alcohol, big alcohol, especially, it's like, you guys literally did this. Like, you know, this doesn't work and you have no problem keeping prohibition in place for other people, knowing that research and data shows how dangerous alcohol actually is, right? And like how much support we actually need. Like you don't die from a heroin withdrawal. withdrawal. You, you can die from an unsupervised alcohol withdrawal. Like this is like a real conversation about prohibition and like y'all just let prohibition of other drugs go, go for so long because it helped your bottom line. Um, so one, that was just like, 
like, oh, you can't be quiet. Oh, you can't start talking now. Like talking about we need to end prohibition. Like y'all have been chilling while people have been killed, while people have died, while um, all these public health issues, like y'all just been on the sidelines watching this. Um, so that has that was one reason. But the other thing is that the thing that DPA navigates is that we're both, we're an organization that believes in autonomy. We're an organization that believes in ending criminalization, but we're also an organization that believes in public health. And those companies or th that, those industries, um, while they believe in autonomy, their commitments to public safety and their commitments to public health are questionable, if non-existent. You know, they are not, they are stakeholders in the work, but they are not our allies in the work. And I think that making that distinction is important because we do want, we do want to care about issues around public health. And so that, that those are the conversations around advertising. Those are the conversations about testing and research. And I think as we have those conversations and how we build the markets, I think we're also like, you know, profit can't be the thing that drives the way we move through regulation. I mean, not the way that alcohol and tobacco do it um, because the people that use drugs, we don't, we want them to be at the center and we want their wellness to be at the center and a profit driven system, one under capitalism has put them in really dangerous positions now because of the ways that we enforce those policies. And so if we're going by the same structures and strategies by those companies, we're gonna be in a similar situation. Regulation is supposed to give us more choices, not less. Uh, Cassandra, I'd really like to know your thoughts on drug war reparations. Um, there's this push in Congress to study reparations for slavery, which I support personally, uh, but there's also talk of reparations for people who have been targeted by the drug war. And why not? You know, if your life was destroyed by a seemingly arbitrary law, these plants or these chemicals are illegal, well, these are totally fine. Why shouldn't you be getting a monthly check for the time and wealth that was stolen from you? There's no question, um, I believe, in drug war reparations. And I think reparations um, are more than a check, right? They're the acknowledgement of what happened. Um, there is the atonement for what happened, so like a truth process. There can be compensation, whether it's monetarily or different forms of compensation. But then there's also the commitment that it won't happen again. So, you know, oftentimes the things that I'm interested in is as we talk about, you know, folks talk about marijuana legalization reparations. And I'm like, cool, yes. And how do we make sure that they don't just shift it to something else? And so I think the conversation about reparations in general is uh, huge and one that we all need to be focusing on. It's something that I focus on in my work um, and that, you know, DPA is having conversations with, you know, our movement partners like Movement for Black Lives and uh, People, People's Laws Project and other Black-led organizations that are figuring out like what does reparations for the drug war look like? And I think what's, exciting is that this can serve as a platform for us to um, have reparations for other issues because the thing about the drug war it was intentional and there are other policy choices that were intentional um, that are outside of the drug war that also deserve reparations and I think it's about um, I think it's crucial for us to 
not just like be like, yeah, we should get reparations, but us actually to build the campaigns that do that. Um, and I think you see parts of that in the New York bill, which is like, cool, like 40% of that money that comes the tax revenues is, is going back to the communities that have been disproportionately impacted by the drug war. Like it doesn't go back to the state. You have to give it back to the communities. Uh, that leads into kind of like a conspiracy theory that I have. Um, so many of these states that are legalizing cannabis are expunging records. They're throwing out any trace of criminal activity for using cannabis. Um, it's pretty much only applies to, quote, nonviolent offenders, whatever that means. Uh, but something I've encountered lately is that by expunging records, ostensibly a good thing, right? Like the government is making it harder for citizens to hold them accountable for the harms they've inflicted in the name of the drug war. Uh, to give an example... In March, Washington State Supreme Court struck down their drug possession law. They said being arrested for having drugs on you is unconstitutional. And they were immediately sued by a group of defense attorneys in King and Snohomish counties to recover penalties paid in simple drug possession cases, according to MyNorthwest.com. Uh, so I guess my question is, does expunging drug records, again, something I think is a good thing, make it harder for people to hold the government accountable for the trauma and suffering they've been inflicted uh, via the drug war? Is it good enough to say, well, you're no longer a felon for possessing an ounce of plant material. Good luck. Yeah, absolutely not. That is coming from a scarcity mindset. Someone shouldn't have to carry the burden of criminalization to get repaid for the, to get repaid for the harm. I think we need to give people the opportunity to be full citizens in our lives. And we just have to figure out how to do both. I don't think we have to pick one or the other and I don't think we have to sequence one over the other. This is a really long fight. And it just means that our movement needs to think through how we do both at the same time because people shouldn't have to wait to get their lives back together um, in order to get reparations. Um, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to still be enslaved in order to get reparations. Like we, we can figure it out. Um, and I think we just, as the conversations continue that that's what we'll, we'll do. I wanted to turn the topic to um, the fight for supervised injection in Philadelphia, which I think came closer than, than anywhere else to becoming a reality. Um, as everyone here knows, the Third Circuit shot down the lower, court, lower court's ruling that supervised injection would not violate the Controlled Substances Act. Um, but you know, the context in which that fight happened, there were there were some there were many like sort of side arguments, and, and one of them was was this idea that um, that this was a white white problem, and people only started paying attention to it when it was a white problem. And I think that the racial politics that got you know infused into this fight for a, a public health, health measure um, was not entirely um, authentic and genuine. But um, besides that, uh, I would say, um, what do you think the prospects are now under a Biden administration? Um, you know, Biden is certainly a, an improvement to what we had before, but he is definitely an 80s style drug warrior. And I think we might be remiss in, in not focusing on that um, just because we're happy that a Democrat's in the White House. Listen, I, I feel like everyone at DPA has been waiting all their life to push Joe Biden to change what he has done. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think folks are like excited about the different direction the administration is in, but no one has forgotten who got us here. 
And so I think there is a lot of work to be done. I mean, I think the Biden-Harris administration just came out and put their statement and said the words harm reduction and everyone's super excited. Like we find they finally got it. And I'm like, yeah, no, like, okay, Matt, like that's the bare minimum, my guy. Like we are losing so many people right now, um, more than we've ever had. And you're, we're not going to just fix this with the things that we've already told you for the last 20 years that we need. Like you have, we have to move the goalposts. And that includes, you know, safer consumption spaces, but it also includes safe supply. Like we're in 2021, 80,000 people are dying. Like, like this is, we are in, like the, it can't get more cold red than where we are. And so I think that the fight for safer consumption spaces um, needs to be expanded, needs to be um, more uh, assertive about like we have the moral high ground. I think that the, the, the dynamic you talked about in Philadelphia is a real one. And I think there is, uh, I think there's truth to it. And I also think that part of it is a, I'm trying to be careful here because it's very real that the rhetoric around overdose was influenced by the perception of who was being affected. But I think part of it is that people were lied to, you know, like people don't realize that overdose is skyrocketing among black and Latino people. And that in some cases it's leveling off among white people. People are missing the fact that this has always been a racialized issue. And even in the way that the response is. And I would say that some of the people, especially in Philadelphia, right? There are some of the people in Philadelphia that are using the racial politics to be disruptive and to be destabilizing. It is, a, it is also a critique of our organizing, right? Like how are we going into communities of color and dismantling the miseducation, right? It's not, even though folks know that the drug war is racist, you're not telling communities of color anything they don't know. Um, we haven't always put into um, tangible concepts, uh, it's racist and it's not good for you, right? Like it's not like these, these policies are racist in nature or they're classist in nature. Like I think a lot of times people just feel like communities of color are supposed to follow something just because something happens to be racist. And we're way more multidimensional. We deserve way more analysis. We, we deserve more, way more investment in public education and not after we've decided to do something, but in the beginning. Um, and that's not a critique to Philadelphia. That's a critique to our harm reduction and drug policy movement in general. Um, that I think oftentimes, and you saw this with marijuana where folks were like, we wanna legalize marijuana because you know, um, first it was like, we want to legalize marijuana because it's a plant and we have rights. Then people started realizing that racial justice was an effective tool to like get elected officials. So then we promised like racial, racial justice utopia. And then everybody was surprised when it didn't work out. And it's like the, like the conversation around racial justice, it's, it's not a strategy. It's, it, 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 it has to be an ethos. And I think people see through that. And because they see through that, 
it makes it difficult to do the multiracial organizing that we need to do to save our communities. Thank you so much for that very well-reasoned and thoughtful uh, response. It was really great. Thank you. Yeah, I, I feel like also I'm seeing this with um, the major opioid litigation happening when you see like the families who lost loved ones to Oxycontin, let's say, like the the list of, uh, you know, people who, who probably were harmed by pharma it's a very white looking crowd of, of moms, of families, of, of, of people trying to kind of jump into the billions at stake in this litigation, right? You know, it's so interesting. We're having this fight in New York right now um, because it's as, <laughs> it's as if people believe that there are no black families or Latinx families or indigenous or Asian families that have lost their loved ones to overdose. Or to pharma and healthcare malfeasance. Yeah, like it's like, as if we weren't targeted by pharma, as if we weren't barred from pharma, as if we didn't have access to it. You know, in the beginnings of the overdose crisis and we were talking about this and people were like, oh, white people are dying. First of all, there's more white people in this country, one. So raw numbers is always gonna be more. But two, it's like folks were like, oh, well, you know, Black people can't get access to pharma because you know they're drug seeking. So nobody wants to give them drugs. And that racism was a protective factor. Like that's what people were saying five years ago. That stuff drives me nuts, by the way. Oh my God. <laughs> like black people. To someone who has sickle cell. Racism's and, not which helping. It's mostly black people. Like black it's just like it's not. It is ridiculous the way that the conversation around opioid settlements, as well as um who who um, are the face of those conversations. And it's not that white families shouldn't be um, leading that conversation. It's that families in general should be leading it. So the vanguard of that push needs to be way more <laughs> diverse. Um, but it also shows you the hierarchy of who is listened to. Yeah, that's a really good point. Right? It's like the thing that Chris just brought up about how it's a white issue is like, if the majority of the people that were dying of overdose were Black, were Latinx, would a state attorney generals across this country sue the companies? Did, did, any, did attorney generals sue any of the banks for redlining? Did they sue, do, do state attorney generals sue law enforcement for all the Black people they're killing? It is what is what is their recognition of pain and when does that pain register for there to be state action? And that is what serves as the, the destabilizing force in places like Philadelphia. Damn, yeah. No, that's that's the connection right there. Yeah. Um, so we maybe winding down a bit and, and, and getting the conversation to to you cassandra like let's talk a little bit more about you so our listeners can like know who you are more like i first learned some of your background when uh northwestern journalism professor uh stephen thrasher invited you and me into his uh journalism class and i think that was like back in october and we were you know i, I heard you uh, talking about your background as in social work. And if I recall, you mentioned how like 
you didn't initially intend to specialize in, in treating addiction or, or focusing on drug issues or drug policy. Um, can you talk a little bit about the impetus behind your professional move into this world out of the uh, kind of clinical world? When, you know, it's so interesting because I always feel bad talking about this because it is really such an honor and a privilege to do this kind of work. And I wasn't intentional about being in this space. I um, have always been an organizer, community gatherer. Uh, I think anyone you talk to me growing up in New York City, if you talk to anyone in someone that went to school with me, like I organized the teacher's baby shower and bridal shower and school dances and student body president and community trips to Dorney Park. Like I've always been a community gatherer in high school, you know, student body president, in choir, all these different things, college, you know, part of the social justice space, the black women spaces, all that stuff and was in the labor school. So did believe in like co collective building and social change. Social work was unintentional as well. Um, I had, no, I was graduating in 2008, um, had no idea what I wanted to do. Someone told me to go to grad school. I didn't wanna take another test. The social work school didn't have a GRE. So I went there and- <laughs> GRE is terrible by the way, you, you made the right move. You know, I'm in social work school. And I did take a class on the intersection between criminal justice and social work. And I was like, oh yeah, I wanna be in justice. Like I knew I wanted to be in some sort of justice world. If you look at a, an essay I did for a scholarship, I never even imagined doing policy work. I don't even think I had the concept that it was the kind of work that I could do. Um, I don't know if it's that I didn't think I was smart enough or anything like that, but I just, I had no concept of it. Like if you look at an essay, what I wanted to do was uh, organize events for nonprofits because I knew I could organize events, but the concept of organizing people was not yet there for me. Like I, it hadn't materialized in my mind when I was like 17, 18 years old. Um, even though I had been organizing people my whole life, but just through the concept of events. And uh, I, you know, in social work school, you get an internship. I didn't pick DPA. I picked somewhere else. There was drama between the school and the place of my internship. And so the school was like, she's not going there. And they asked me if I wanted to do an internship with an anti-racism organization that did trainings. And, or if I wanted to do go to the place that just did Rockefeller drug law reforms. Um, in my lifetime, I've been a part of so many DEI efforts. And I was like, I'm really done watching white people realize that they're white. Um, <laughs> so I just, I just want more for myself. <laughs> um, so um, I picked DPA and had no idea. I didn't realize that DPA was on like, like I knew they did the Rockefeller drug law reforms, but I wasn't quite clear that they were against the drug war, you know? Um, so much so I thought I was gonna work at ONDCP after my internship. Cause I thought, oh yeah, they're gonna love my experience. Like, like in my first week. <laughs> um, and then I was here at DPA and it, it, 
what was great about it was it gave a lot of analysis for the things I saw and experienced in New York. Like I was like, oh, 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 wow. This is incredible. Like I just, it just, so many lights went off, like lights for things in my family, lights for things for friends, lights for things like in the neighborhood, like in college, my fr- I remember my freshman year, I had two um, friends from high school that died of overdose. Um, and I remember being called on campus in college and being like, you know, this person, this person passed away. They were together and it was a drug overdose. And I remember being on campus and I didn't even really understand what that meant. I was just like, oh, wow, that's sad. Like, what do you mean? So like, they're like dead? And everyone was like, yeah. And I was like, wow, that fucking sucks. And like, going, you know, being at DPA and in 2011, us passing Good Samaritan laws and like recognizing like, if there was a Good Samaritan law, could that have helped, you know, these two high school classmates, right? Or, yeah, I mean, I think for me it was, I, I'm super privileged and honored to be leading an organization um, because I'm literally the product of pub- political and public education around drugs through DPA. Like I know as much as I do because DPA exists and took the time to develop me as an advocate. And it's not that I learned everything from DPA. It's just that DPA provided the connective tissue of the things that I already knew as a black woman growing up in New York. Yeah. Uh, I'm really grateful that organizations like DPA exist because they have educated me on a lot of stuff as well. I think this is a good place to wrap up. Uh, we want to respect your time and everything. Um, is there anything else that you want people to know about? Uh, anything that uh, DPA is working on that might be coming out soon or anything you want people to know, where people can find you on social media, all that kind of stuff? Um, you know, I'm still kind of getting nervous about the fact of more people following me because I'm just like, I like to be free on my social media. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but you can find me at Cassandra underscore Fred on Twitter. Um, what I would say is we cannot do this alone. I think the thing I want drug policy reformers to know and to understand is that our work is not in a vacuum. We may have a lane and a niche, um, but it's so interconnected with so many other things. And I think that drug policy has been able to kind of walk the line because so many people uh, like us, right? So you have people from all sides of the aisle um, who are invested in this issue for many different reasons. Like we're one of the few issues that cut across political lines. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's incredibly important. Um, but I think if we are going to end the drug war, that we have to firmly be on the side of justice. And that and that DPA is not going to, under me at least, we're not going to push for drug policy at the expense of justice. Um, that it will be justice wholesale. Yeah. Um, that will be, we, would, we will be providing a platform for other movements to push. Um, we won't be cutting other people down and saying only for drugs. That is not our work. Our work is because the people who use drugs they're impacted by multiple issues. They're not just impacted by drugs. They're impacted by housing, unemployment, policing. And so therefore our work has to be generative enough that if 
if um, if we get if we end prohibition, that the other things that impact these people are also aided by the work that we do. Because one of the things I've said to harm reductionists is, if we give someone naloxone and reverse their overdose, and they get up and they get to walk, and then they walk down the block and then get killed by a police officer, we have not saved a life, we have delayed their death. And I want to be in the business of saving lives wholesale. And so that means that we have to give people naloxone and we have to deal with all the other things that kill people. Yeah. Safe supply. I'm so in favor of that. Yeah. And also just that, you know, while we're talking like the, the Derek Chauvin trial like is happening and it's such a clinic in how the kind of collective notions of drug use, especially by black men are interpreted in a courtroom, by a jury, by all of us watching, um, that it is so cross-cutting that that drugs are, you know, in all of our lives, whether we're using them or not. The thing that I said when people talk to me about Breonna Taylor um, and with George Floyd, I say the same thing. If Breonna was a drug dealer, if George Floyd was injecting on the street neither one of them should be dead Mm -hmm. people who use drugs people who sell drugs should not be executed by the law right that is that is that is the principle that i'm fighting for right like just because you use drugs just because you are involved in sales you should not be executed by the state with impunity it's not okay um one of the guiding statements that I think about quite often is, you know, one of my pinned tweets by um, Dorsey Nunn, the founder of All of Us Are None in California, um, who's formerly incarcerated. Um, And he says, you know, like, my son may not get Skittles and a drink, he may get a beer and a blunt, and I still expect him to make it home safe. Like that, that is the guiding star. That is the guiding star. that the state doesn't have a right to kill you, period, regardless if you're involved in drugs or not. Yeah. All right. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show, Cassandra. I really appreciate the work you do and the work the DPA does. Uh, We're so happy to promote it and uh, hope we can have you on again sometime. I'd love to. Thanks so much for the work that y'all are doing. Yeah. No, this is great. Definitely excited to learn more about you and your story and, and hear about kind of um yeah where where dpa is at under your leadership and where it's going and there's already been so much accomplished just in the last six months you know (laughs) while you've been heading it it's um quite remarkable quite impressive um yeah i wish you the best of luck thanks for listening to narcotica an independent production by troy farah christopher morath and zachary siegel I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free and want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast, advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Our theme music is by Glass Boy and Jenny Shays, the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, Aaron Ferguson. I'm a drug-using producer who goes by the alias Nomad1 on SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's everything. Have a good weekend.